0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, I don't want to die, I'll be honest. Death scares me. Even though you say that the form of life I currently live isn't life to to the abundance, isn't life to the fullest. Even though you say that there are elements in the way I view the world, the way I view other people um, that need to go, there's still comfort in what's familiar. But that's not the story you're writing. You're inviting us into a story, into a new world, where we are learning to be in relationship with the God who created all things, the God who is present right now. And so, Lord, I ask that you silence our hearts and our minds um, and give us courage and the ability to hear your voice today. It's in your name, amen. All right. So we, oh, youth, sorry, Joseph. (laughs) If there are youth as well, you can go with Pastor Joseph in the back. Um, So sixth through 12th grade, awesome. So we are talking today about the sacrament of the table, the table. Now that's an important one for us, right? It's our tagline. You heard Trey just say it. If you've been with us for any period of time, we've talked about it extensively. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Some of the staff may or may not have that tattooed somewhere. I'm just saying, you have to go ask around who it is, all right? Um, I actually don't know if anyone does, all right? Just saying. But wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. The table is a very important symbol for us. It is, in a sense, the central locus point for Hope Brooklyn because, we didn't just dream that up, because it's the central locus point of the new world that is in Jesus. In fact, in, in uh, the revelation of John, when John, the apostle John is given uh, this vision of the world that currently is and the world that is coming, early on in it, he says this, Jesus is talking, and Jesus says, listen, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hear my voice, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. That's so fascinating, is it not? Because this current season of God's work in the world is described as the son of God knocking on the door of the world and on the door of our hearts, inviting us to a meal. That's who this God is. This is a God who longs to eat with us. And that's sort of why we've adopted the symbol of the table for us. But it it begs a good question of like, whose table is this, right? The idea is that the table is the implicit space that allows for explicit revelations by God. The table, it's, it's, I mean, yes, we share a meal, but obviously we're not at a table right now. And this is the symbolic table. This is the implicit space by which we can receive revelations from God, revelations of this new world that he's knocking on the doors. And I want to talk about this because I think it's an important one, especially in our current context and climate. Um. I've had a lot of conversations with friends, especially friends who are not Christians. And when I talk to them about Christianity, one of their reasons, one of the reasons for keeping God at arm's distance is this idea that Christianity is the white man's religion. And we've heard that. But I wanna make the case today, as we talk about the table, the implicit space where God reveals his new world, that that is just patently not true. (laughs) It's never been true from the first page of the story It's not true today, and I wanna talk about the logic for how this is the case. So a brief aside as we enter into this, we're gonna talk a little bit about race today. And if I've learned anything over the last couple years, um, I know that when we bring up topics that are very, very sensitive, that topics that are kind of battleground topics out in culture, it's very easy. You may already feel it in yourself to clench up to defend, and I just wanna ask all of us here in this space today to feel that, to be aware of it, and to perhaps allow God into it, that maybe we can hear what he might have to say about this table that he's setting, about the way he's knocking on the door of our hearts and saying, hey, I wanna come in and eat with you, and then us with one another, what that might look like, So we're going to read its story from the book of Acts. For those who don't know, Acts tells the story of the first church. So brief recap, Jesus, he comes, he lives an incredible life, an insane life. People don't know what to do with it. So we do what we do with most people that we don't understand. We kill them. We exterminate them because they're a threat to our order. So he dies on a cross. However, something new happens, something interesting happens, which is attested to by those who are his closest followers and those like Paul, who we'll hear about, who's not necessarily a a follower of Jesus yet. He's raised from the dead. That's something that hasn't happened. And he appears to a couple people. He appears to a group sort of confirming, hey, I know this feels totally insane, but it's true. Then he goes to the Father. And then these Jewish people, because they're all Jews at this point, Jewish people who are now worshiping Jesus as their savior, as the Messiah. They're, they're praying together, they're worshiping together, and then one day, the spirit of Jesus falls on them, and they're overcome with love and with grace, and one of them, whose name is Peter, he stands up and he preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people are saved that day. They're so convicted by a sermon that they, they're like, who is this Jesus? I want him to eat with me and us with one another. And so this is the story of Acts, which tells how that first church has started. And we're gonna read from Acts 10. And I kid you not, I'm not making an overstatement here. I was doing the math in my head. This may be the fifth most important story in the Bible. The fifth. First is the death and resurrection, for those who are wondering. Second is probably the incarnation when Jesus is born. Third, maybe I didn't think this one completely through. The third I think is when God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe that, that's, my theologically, that's probably tied with number one anyway. And then God calls Abraham, and then this might be five, all right? This might be five. And we're gonna talk, all that to say it's very important, guys, all right? Don't, don't fact check me, it's very important. This is a really, really vital story, and I wanna explain why this is the case. It's a long one, but it's pure narrative, so hopefully you stick with it, okay? Acts chapter 10. That's Caesarea. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment, a.k.a. he's not Jewish, he's Roman, okay? He and all his family were devout, God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who was called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice told him, get up Peter, kill and eat. Surely not Lord, Peter replied. Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer, remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He's a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace, The circumcised believers, aka the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Fifth most important story in the Bible. In this story, we're talking about the table. And again, the table is sort of the implicit space that brings us together, that opens up the new world. And I wanna make the claim today that the table reveals some things. The table reveals where we're going. God is revealing through the space of this table where we're going, where we are, and how we're gonna get there. Where we're going, where we are, and how we're going to get there. Well, where are we going? Where we're going is we're going to new humanity. New humanity. As I said, up until this point, there was a certain trajectory. This event right here has utterly changed the course of the world over the last 2,000 years. If this story had not happened, most of us, maybe all of us, I'm not sure, would not be in this space right now. Because up till now, Jesus is the Jewish savior. Jesus is the Messiah. To be a follower of Jesus was to be unambiguously Jewish in ethnic composition. It all changes here. In verse 45, we're told, and I kind of pointed it out, the circumcised believers, uh, and the reason why Luke says that, the circumcised believers were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. He says that to draw the distinction that this is the, circ- the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, and the Gentiles who are now receiving the spirit of God are uncircumcised. And this, guys, I-, I can't even impress upon us how radical this is, because up until this point, to be in relationship with this God was to live a certain life that abided by the teachings of Israel. And the chief sign of that was circumcision. That was the mark that you were part of of God's people. And so Luke, who's the author of this, he's trying to draw a distinction to say, here are people who have done nothing to live in accordance with the law of Israel, and God is accepting them and welcoming them into the family. It would be akin to, and I don't know who it is for you, but if you imagine in your mind right now, the worst of the worst. And I don't know what makes that person or this group the worst of the worst, but who's that group where you think they are so, far away from God, and it would be like in a moment, you saw the Spirit of God, you saw them overcome with the love of God, with the acceptance of God. And you'd probably be like, whoa, 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 <laughs> them too, like how, how is this happening, right? How is this happening? And this is why, and this was kind of a joke in seminary, and I tried to tell it like a year ago and no one laughed, so I'm gonna say it's a joke, but I'm gonna expect no one to laugh, it's okay. Um, but we, in seminary, we, we laughed a lot. But it, it points out, our professors pointed out, um, that the fundamental question of the New Testament is not about the identity of Jesus. That's assumed. Perhaps the argument can be made that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to prove who Jesus is, though the argument is also made that they're doing less of proving who Jesus is and they're more trying to strengthen the belief of those who are already encountered Jesus. But the fundamental question of the letters of the New Testament is not about the identity of Jesus. It's asking the question, how Jewish do you have to be to worship him? That was the joke right there, but it's all right, I get it. I was was prepared for it this time, so it didn't let me down. How Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus? Or if we wanna put it in our own language, how Western do you have to be to be a Christian? Right? How Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus? How Western do you have to be to be a Christian? Four chapters later, this is Acts 10, or sorry, five chapters later. Acts 15, we have a momentous chapter called the Jerusalem Council, where they discuss just this question because they're saying, hey, the spirit of God has gone on the Gentiles, those who are not circumcised. What do we do? We've never had this problem before. They're worshiping Jesus. They're in relationship with him. Do they need to be circumcised and and be Jewish like us? Do they need to follow all the law? What do they have to do? And the Jerusalem council decided that no, they don't. Oh, that that one might be ranked a little higher than this story. I'm not sure, they go together. But they decided no, they don't. That they don't have to become Jewish to worship Jesus. They can be fully themselves and in relationship with God. And then you see verses, you see examples of this throughout all the letters. So in Ephesians 2, Paul says, remember that formerly you who were called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. He's drawing distinction. He's going to a longer argument, but he's basically drawing the distinction that there are now those who worship this God who are Jewish and those who are not. Later on in Galatians, Paul says, but when Peter, and remember this one, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And every page, they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be in relationship with God through Jesus? How Jewish do you have to be? They're dealing with race and racism and prejudice. God is enlarging his family, and he did it without asking the Jewish people's permission. He's enlarging the family. He went to Cornelius. He poured out his spirit. And now he's saying, I've invited both of you to this table, this space. Figure out what it means to be family. Do the hard work because I've accepted both of you. Now you get to do the hard work. And this is pointed out by historians as well. Larry Hurtado, in his wonderful book, Destroyer of the Gods, he writes, from well within the very first couple of decades, the Jesus movement became trans-ethnic in composition. That is from this early point onward, early Christian religious identity was not tied to one's ethnicity and did not involve a connection to any particular ethnic group. Up till this point, one's religious identity was aligned with one's ethnic identity. In Christianity, that shifts. And what Hurtado's not saying and what the the gospel's not saying is that we lose our ethnicity, our our story, our culture when we enter to the table. No. He's saying that we now have a trans-ethnic family, which is something completely different. And that's present in the very first chapter. So early on, So early on. And it's also present in John's revelation. Remember, we're talking about how the table reveals where we're going. In that revelation that John gets of where we are and where we're going, he says, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb a multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every peoples, and every language, which means we're not going to this monolithic blob. No, that everyone brings the fullness of their story into the new family. Every language is present. Every tribe is present. And the common denominator now is that we're all worshiping Jesus. That's what unites us and binds us, the God we worship. How we do it looks different. There's something really compelling about this image, about this vision of multiple cultures eating together, sharing joy, and there's a deficit, and we notice it when that's not the case. The relationship that Jesus affirmed was about welcoming cultural distinctions, while pushing all, because there is commonality, pushing all to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, as it's called, when the Spirit of God is present. So there's, there's a presence of love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and steadfastness. That's all the same. But the languages and the way we worship, that starts looking different. So the table reveals to us where we're going. That's where we're going. The table also reveals to us where we are. Where are we? Well, we're not there yet. (laughs) The table reveals the tremendous fear that clouds our eyes from the way of Jesus. And you see it in this very story, right? We see it in this story. When God reveals to Peter the vision of the animals, what does he say? And he says, take up and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, never. I've never eaten anything unclean. And he says, don't call unclean what God has now made clean. The very first thing Peter says when he shows up in the house of Cornelius, he just like names the elephant in the room, right? He goes, hey, we're all aware that this is unlawful for me to be here, right? That's going to be an awkward dinner party, guys. If You show up and be like, hey, I'm not allowed to be here, but I chose to be here. You're welcome, okay? It's going to be awkward, but there's this fear that's present even in the story. No, none of the characters are aware of what's going on. Did you notice the codedness of God? He tells Peter after that vision, go with them without hesitation. He gets there and he's like, why am I here? They're like, I don't know, we were sent for you or we were sent to, to call you. No one knows, God is doing something and he's hiding it from everyone. And the steps to this point were long. Multiple visions to multiple groups requests to come, visions to go without explanation. And I think they were necessary because what they detail for us is the distance between one another. God is revealing where we attribute cultural distinctions to him as non-negotiables. And he's saying that's actually not the case. For them, it was circumcision. This is a cultural distinction that is a non-negotiable. And God's saying, that's not the case. And all these various ways, he's bringing us to the table and we're learning what are those non-negotiables. And when we fail to see them, the implications are tragic. I think I've, I've shared this example before, um, but there's a, a known of Matteo Ricci. Matteo Ricci was a Jesuit missionary in China during the 1500s. And when he was there, he, he worked really hard to... Um, to enter into deep relationship with the Chinese people. So he adopted dress, he learned language, he translated. um, He worked really, really hard. However, there was this one point um, that was was part of the the Chinese culture that they didn't wanna let go of, which was praying to their ancestors. And it's recounted um, that he wrote back to Rome. Interestingly enough, those with the power to make the decision were in Rome, very far away, And he said, it's okay. He said, in my estimation, living here, um, prayers to ancestors have less to do with how, how how effective they are, and more to do with about training the young to respect their elders. That was his estimation, who was on the ground in relationship living. But those in Rome said, no, this is a non-negotiable for us. It can't happen. And then you study, if you watch uh, how Christianity was spreading in China up till that point, and then after that decision, it just dwindles so fast. Stopped. And I'm not saying that the decision was right or wrong. All I'm saying is this presents the question of what does it mean to worship Jesus? What does it mean to be in relationship? What part of cultures are affirmed and welcomed? And what are questioned? And usually, and, and this isn't, this isn't always the case but usually I found fear is proportionate to our distance. Not always the case, okay? But in a lot of a lot of times our fear of situations or of people can be proportionate to our distance from them. So we create ideas and we don't know. And usually pushing into relationship allows to dispel that, and we realize commonalities. But where the church is more or less afraid shows where we haven't taken the vision of the New Testament seriously. That of entering into one another's spaces, that of the table that is trans-ethnic in composition. There was a Newsweek article a couple years back that said that of the 300,000 or so religious congregations in America, only 7.5% of them would qualify as multi-ethnic. And that's simply defined as a congregation in which no single ethnicity makes up more than 80% of those who attend. That's not just Christianity, that's all religions. Only 7.5%. In a sense, the table is the litmus test for whether our hearts are pointed to the gospel's vision of the new humanity. God has brought together Jew and Gentile. He's given the gift of his spirit. It is God's doing. And the common denominator in both these instances is our distance from one another. Peter shows up and says, I'm not allowed to be here, but God told me to come here. He's figuring out what it means. They invite him to say, I don't know why you're here either. What does this mean for us to be in family? There's distance, but now at the table, we have space and time to enter into a relationship. And that's gonna take time. And that's gonna take a lot of hard work. And that's gonna take a lot of forgiveness and repentance. But the table reveals to us where we are. So maybe some questions for us, what do our meals look like? What do our spaces look like? When is the last time we sat with someone at brunch we don't know? And I'm not even talking about someone who is different ethnically. I'm just talking about someone we don't know. And I get it. There are definitely times where we need to sit with those we know. But if we're taking the vision that God is giving us seriously, we are being pushed into relationship with those who we are previously distant from. I can just start with, I don't know you or your story. When's the last time we did that? When's the last time we shared a meal with someone with whom we think differently? That's not just going to happen, friends. You got to be intentional about it. You're not just going to sit down and be like, oh, we actually think fundamentally different. No, you're going to realize that. You're going to have to push into that type of relationship. So the table reveals where we're going. The table reveals where we are. And the table reveals how we're getting there. The logic of the table. And this is going to be the death of the table. And in order to explain this fully, I want to take a step back and paint a picture of how you and I currently see our current building blocks of our vision in the West. Um, if you grew up in America, if you grew up in the West, or if you spent extended period, periods of time here in America or in the West, we have been formed by this way of seeing the world, and I want to explain that so we can understand how the table speaks into that. This is our current Western vision inherited from the golden age of imperialism, and you and I all, we all see this way. There's a wonderful book called The Christian Imagination by Dr. Willie Jennings, who was at Duke for a while, now he's at Yale. I recommend it to everyone, but only under the condition that you like academic books. If you don't like academic books, buy me dinner and I'll give you the, the synopsis, all right? Seriously. But it's, a, but it's a, I might have a lot of dinner dates. That'd be awesome. <laughs> but it's a great, great book. And I just want to pull out a couple points uh, that he makes. I'm, I'm going to reduce his argument as a way to help us see the assumptions we make and the way we view our world. So he talks about this. In one chapter, he says, European colonialists. In acts of breathtaking hubris, they imagined the interlocking nature of all people and things within their own independence of those very people and things. Now this is an independence that facilitates the constant turnings of existence. So land and body are connected at the intersection of European imagination and expansion But what must be underscored is the point of connection. The Portuguese and the Spanish, that is, the European. He is the point of connection. He stands now between bodies and land, and he adjudicates, means judges, he identifies, determines, and saves. Now, there's a lot of ideas going on in this. I want to pull out three. The first one is this, that in the age of imperialism, when Europeans started to spread and expand territories, expand nations. What we found, something that developed is that the European imagination, the European mindset, began to separate the land from the bodies, the peoples who lived on the land, which that was very new. And we all still view this way. You know how I know this? Because you and I, unless you're an anarchist, we believe in private property, right? Private property, was thoroughly birthed out of this. Up until this point, there was a, to more or less degree, a symbiotic relationship between the land that we lived upon and the peoples who lived there. Most people, you were born and and you died on the same patch of land. But in the age of imperialism and expansion, that became different. We could, in fact, own land that we didn't live upon. So what happened, one of the first things that happened was there was a cut between those the native peoples who lived on the land and the land itself. And we realized that what we could do is we could chop up the land, cut it up, parcel it out, monetize it, and sell it. But not only could we do that with the land, we could also do that with the peoples who lived on the land. So it allowed for the enslavement and displacement of peoples. So the first thing that happened in this imagination is that Europeans said, hey, we can cut people living on the land and the land itself. The second thing that happened, the mediator between the lands and the bodies on the land was the European. Dr. Jennings writes further, he goes, Europeans enacted racial agency as a way of understanding their bodies in relation to new spaces and new peoples and to their new power over those spaces and peoples. So the white body replaced the earth as the signifier of identity. What's he saying? He's saying there's like tons of new stuff happening. Europeans are spreading across the globe in a way that has never occurred. And of course, like any of us, they're they're experiencing new stimulation and they're trying to write about it. They're trying to describe it, to narrate it, to make sense of it. But in that process of making sense of what they're seeing and in that process of making sense of what's going on, they're also making sense of the peoples that they're running into. So in the literature and correspondence that we have from this period, as Europeans are processing so many new things, it is their thought, it is their logic that emerges as the fundamental story, as the defining story. So people by extension, you and me, we're learning to view the world through the Europeans' eyes because that's the literature that wins out. So the European is describing their own identity and the native people's identity at the same time, even as they're beginning to parcel out land. So what happens is there's a creation of a racialized vision. There's a creation of a vision that sees skin color. And what makes it incredibly tragic and more complex is because Christianity is a part of this. So in this parceling out, in this describing, it's baptized in theological language, which basically means that Europeans as they're describing this, they're not just talking about bringing civilization, but they're bringing Christianity. And you know who needs God or who doesn't by the color of their skin. And I know for some of us this might be incredibly difficult to hear. This might be the first time we're hearing anything like this. Again, buy me dinner and I'd love to talk about it more. But I want to say, I still remember when I first started learning about this, about the ways that my my way of seeing the world was influenced um, by the age of imperialism. I was terrified, friends. I was terrified. You know why I was terrified? Because it felt like the rug underneath my entire life was just ripped out from under me. When I first started learning about privilege and and all sorts of things of assumptions that I was making and didn't know I was making, it felt like the rug was ripped out. And I, I got terrified of like, can I trust any of this? Where else have I been complicit in ways of seeing that have been destructive? But here's the encouragement for you that God gave to me. In this story, It's Peter. It's Peter who's being confronted. Peter who walked with Jesus. Peter who Jesus says, on you I'm going to build my church. Peter who receives the Holy Spirit and preaches the first sermon that saves 3,000 people. Peter is the one who's revealed, used by God, and still revealed by God saying, you got a ways to go still. Peter, when we read about Galatians, and I said, don't forget that text earlier. After he's received this situation with Cornelius, and he goes to Galatia, and he's eating with Gentiles, but then Jewish believers come. And what does Paul say he does? He says he backs off, because he got afraid again. And Paul called him out, because that's what you do in family. You call one another out. Not because you're, you're, you're saying we're done, but because we're at this table together. We gotta figure it out. This is Peter Does that mean everything that's happened up to this point is negated? Not at all. It means God's saying, even in our impure efforts, I'm at work. Now, perhaps we can take steps into realizing uh, a better way to see, a way to see that is formed by by me and by my spirit. And the last point, the last point, the, the three sort of fundamental assumptions, the last one and it's kind of implicit, is that European Christianity inverted its sense of hospitality, right? And you can sort of see that. Dr. Jennings writes, it claimed to be the host, the owner of the spaces that it entered, and it demanded native peoples enter its cultural logics, its way of being in the world, and its conceptualities. It entered into new spaces, but instead of coming as a guest, instead of coming to learn, it came and immediately planted a flag and said, we own this now. We know how best to use this, to monetize this. So it inverted hospitality. Now, why do I explain all that? Because I think it's really important when we talk about the table that has started for those of us who are learning what it is to be in relationship with God through Jesus. Because it's something completely different. Notice, guys, I said, I'm about to come full circle, so stay with me now. Notice I said that this is like one of the most important stories because this makes it so that the gospel does not stay just a Jewish thing, but it can spread. Well, remember in this story, at the inception of the church, first Cornelius is at home praying, right? God comes to him. Then Peter's at home praying. God starts giving him visions. Well, some of Cornelius' people come to Peter and they talk. And then Peter goes back with Cornelius' people to Cornelius' house, and they talk. We have this interesting exchange of people in their own places, their own homes, such that it ends with Peter saying, well, nothing can prevent them from being baptized. Even without any sense of cultural shift, they've received the Spirit, they can be baptized. So I want to answer those three things we just talked about, those three fundamental assumptions of our Western vision. And now what are these fundamental assumptions of our new way of seeing as part of the people of God? Well, first, if the European vision would separated land from bodies, notice how God is uniting separated groups at a new land, the table. We might even say God is uniting previously separated groups in a new world. Peter didn't go to the Gentiles, God did. The Gentiles didn't go to Peter to prepare him, God did. God has gone to both and to all and has brought into this new space, this new world called the table and said, now we're learning what it is to be family. The church is not interested in separating or dividing but in uniting, and I said this a couple weeks back, but I think it's important. If you look at the etymology of the word, uh, the devil in Greek, diabolos, el diablo, it means the separator, dia means through, and balo means to cut or to slice or to throw. So the devil quite literally is one who separates, who cuts through, who divides. That's what it means to be of the evil one. God is in the business of stitching up all the divisions of the world. And it had to start with the fundamental division, which is when we separated ourselves from Him. But in Jesus' death, in Jesus' death now, God has entered into every possible mode of existence where humans are. We are no longer separated from Him, we are invited into relationship. And because Jesus was raised to life, He is now, as we're told, the firstborn of the new world the firstborn of the new creation. And through his spirit, we are given the gift to begin to stitch up the separations of the world, to stitch up the cuts. We're not in the business of separating anybody. We're in the business of bringing together and figuring out how we can mend these wounds. The second thing, if the mediator between the bodies and the land and and the Western way of viewing things was the European, now the mediator between Jews and Gentiles is Jesus, is Jesus. In Acts 10, 42, Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who trusts in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. The spirit falls on the Gentiles and they, as they are and it confirms this truth. So we learned how to view uh, ourselves in the West through the pen, through the literature, through the processing of the European. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation, who's teaching us, who's the mediator between Jews and Gentiles, bringing us together, teaching us what it means to be people of the new world? What does it mean to say that the primary voice that we're learning our new existence. Because like I said earlier, to enter into this world, it's gonna be death. It's gonna say that who I am, though tremendous gifts and, and my way of seeing the world is still incomplete and I have a lot to learn. What does it mean to say that my primary teacher is a Jewish crucified man? And I can hear that through the words of Scripture and I can hear that through the words of my brothers and sisters. What does that mean? He's now the mediator. He's the narrator of our stories. He reached the new world first and now he's describing it for us. And finally, if European Christianity inverted its sense of hospitality, the table makes us both host and guest. Did you see that in the story? God went to Peter, Talk to him. God went to Cornelius, talked to him. Cornelius' people came over, and then Peter went with them back to Cornelius. In this single story, no one stays on their home court the entire time. Did y'all catch that? That's that's so vital, friends. No one stays on their home court the entire time. In this new space called the table, you and I are both hosts and guest, Peter and Cornelius are both invited into each other's home, which means neither fundamentally own the table. And this is the logic of the table because this is the logic of God. We see it from page one. The creator of life who says, let there be. And there is, who creates a world. You and I would not exist apart from his gracious act. But then what does he do? He enters into the world as a guest of it. He doesn't come and save as outside. He enters into. So God both hosts the world and is a guest of the world. God both creates you. But then what did we read at the very start? Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. He hosts you in life but he still becomes the guest of your heart if you invite him in. And I always wondered when I read that verse, why does it say it twice, right? I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hear my voice, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. I think the reason why it's said twice is to um, maintain that logic, that God is both host and guest, and that you and I are both host and guest. And that process, and when you think about real relationship, right? Like real deep relationship. There are gonna be some seasons, some moments where we're more the host, and some where we we need to receive more, more the guest. And in that process, the relationship is formed. The death is that we are invited into this new world, presented with our distance from one another, and made host and guest, and have to figure out what to do. The resurrection is that in this space, we get to perhaps discover what it means to be the new humanity. You know, when Hope Brooklyn started, um, when it was barely, barely, it was just an idea. We were asked by Hope Church to to start maybe this new community. Nathan and I were still living in Queens. And at first we thought that was ridiculous. (laughs) We were like, what? This is the dumbest thing. Seriously, what did two people from Queens why do they have business starting a church in Brooklyn? Right? And we felt so silly. We had to be hosted by everyone. So our first vision dinners were at Jay and Soonbin's house. When we first started um, Brooklyn Tables, we were hosted by Recovery House of Worship. And I, at first I thought it was ridiculous, but then I think now I'm starting to see the gift that God was giving us. He was forcing, I don't think, Nathan and I would have known to do any differently because we're, we're straight shooters. We'll tell you when we don't know. We're not afraid. But he was forcing on us the humility to say, you are being entered. I'm inviting you to create something, but you're entering into a space that you don't host. So you can't claim to be the owner of this space. And even right now, we're at PS 261. We're being hosted. This tension and this humility of understanding the relationship. Because when it's no one's table, it becomes Jesus's table. And when it's Jesus's table, the vision of the new creation of the new world can begin to shine. And that's really hard, guys. It's really hard. It takes tremendous self-control, and it takes a tremendous team of trust to be able for no one to grab hold of the table and say, we're gonna do it this way. And there's tons of examples I could point to that as well where in the New Testament, the church is described also as a body, which means we all need one another in order to reach the fullness of who God is. No one has the singular voice or vision to direct this other than Jesus himself. It's hard, it's our nature to grab hold and to seek to own and to possess and to, and to hold power, but that's not what we're being invited into. We're being invited into a story where we bring the fullness of ourselves, and then we learn in that space to create something completely different that it couldn't have been when it was just us. Will you pray with me? Lord, I realize that um, today was probably a bit more heady than usual Because we're talking about assumptions of our vision We're talking about the new world that that you're creating. And it's starting right here in the midst of us. It's starting right here. And, And as part of this new world, we realize that we're being invited into it. We're being invited to this table. Even as we're not fully yours yet, we're not fully redeemed by you. And so we bring with us all our baggage in the same way that Peter and Cornelius brought their baggage. We bring with us our fear, we bring with us um, our short-sightedness, we bring with us the failures and the way we view people and ourselves. And there's death in that. So my prayers for each person here that they would be given the nudge and perhaps the, the revelation of where they can lay down elements of their vision, elements of their worldview that need to be changed and be pushed into new friendships, be pushed into humility. We can't do this unless you're present, God. That's always been the case. And your word is spreading. It is absolutely spreading across this world, and it always has. At one point, you were most active in the Middle East, and then it was in the Americas, and now you're most active in the Global South. Your gospel is exploding, it will be. We will realize that vision, where every tribe and tongue and nation is there. And we're all there because we're on our knees wanting to worship Jesus. Because God, you came in the flesh, to tell us how much you love us, to prove that to us, to build the bridge to relate with us. And now you stand at the door and knock and anyone who hears your voice can enter into that family, into that new world. We pray for that, Lord. We pray for that. And we pray for open hands to continue to understand what it means to be both host and guest as you are, Jesus, both host and guest. We bless you. Reveal to us where you want us to take a step. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.